Our scripture text this morning is from the book of Acts, chapter 11, verses 19 through the end of the chapter. Listen to the words of the Lord. Now those who were scattered because of the persecution that arose over Stephen and traveled as far as Phoenicia and Cyprus and Antioch, speaking the word to no one except Jews, but there were some of them men of Cyprus and Cyrene, who on coming to Antioch spoke to the Hellenists also preaching the Lord Jesus. And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number who believed turned to the Lord. The report of this came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem, and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. When he came, he saw the grace of God. He was glad And he exhorted them all to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and of faith. And a great many people were added to the Lord. So Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he had found him, he brought him to Antioch. For a whole year they met with the church and taught a great many people. And in Antioch... The disciples were first called Christians. Now in these days, prophets came down from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them, named Agabus, stood up and foretold by the Holy Spirit that there would be a great famine over all the world. This took place in the days of Claudius. So the disciples determined, everyone according to his ability, to send relief to the brothers living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul. May God bless the reading of his word. Amen. Let's pray together as we come before God's holy word today. Father God, again, we ask for your help as we come to your word, because it is your word, because it is God-breathed because it is what Your Holy Spirit has poured out for us to understand, because it is profitable for us. And Father, we need what Your Word gives us, not just in information, but for the transformation of our lives. Father, we need to be taught. We need to be reproved. We need to be corrected. We need to be trained in righteousness. And it is Your Word that does that for us. And so, Father, have Your way with us this morning. Help us not to just be hearers of Your Word, but to become more and more doers. Help our lives to be conformed more to the image of Jesus because we have come into contact with the living and active Word of God this morning because You have spoken to us and changed us. And so, God, may the words of my mouth, may the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in Your sight as You speak to us from Your Word today, we pray. In Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, as we come back now after several weeks in other parts of God's Word, as we come back to our study together of the book of Acts, we're coming to the second half of Acts chapter 11, where Luke tells us about how the gospel of Jesus Christ came to the city of Antioch. And As you read this passage, it might just seem like a passage where Luke is kind of just reporting the news. 
right? Then the gospel came to Antioch, and here's what happened. It might be tempting for us to just sort of read it quickly, to just sort of read this passage casually, or maybe, maybe even skim over it superficially and move on to find other passages where more exciting things happened than what's recorded here in Acts chapter 11. Like when we get to the next chapter, when we get to chapter 12, we read this amazing story of, of, of Peter getting arrested after James is killed, and the night before Peter's probably going to be killed and executed, while he's chained up in his prison cell to two Roman soldiers, an angel comes in in the middle of the night to the prison cell and frees Peter, causes the chains to just fall off, and then leads Peter while everybody's asleep and, asleep and nobody notices. He leads Peter out of prison, and Peter finds himself on the street. A free man walks back to Mary's house where all of the other disciples are and starts banging on the door and a little girl comes and says, hey, Peter's at the door and nobody believes her because there's no way Peter's at the door. He's at least in prison. He might be dead. And they're shocked to find out that it is Peter. They're amazed. They literally couldn't believe that it was him. That's a pretty exciting story, right? Well, maybe we ought to just skim past the rest of chapter 11 here pretty quickly in order to get into the really good stuff, right? What do you think? Good. That's the right answer. <laughs> and you know me, right? I'm not a skimmer when it comes to God's Word. And normally, normally if I read a passage and, and I don't immediately have a sense of its significance, my assumption isn't that there is no great significance. It's just that I haven't contemplated enough. It's just that I'm too dense to really get it yet. Because all of Scripture is God-breathed, right? All of it. 2 Timothy 2 or 3 verse 16. All means all. Every word of it is breathed out by God Himself. And because of that, every word of it is profitable for us. We need all of it. We dare not skim over any of it because it's profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for training in righteousness. And we need that, all of that, all of the time, don't we? Every single day we need God to teach us more truth. Every single day we need the Word of God to, 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 to clearly in our minds refute any wrong thinking that we have in our heads. That's what reproof means. We need it to correct any wrong attitudes or, or behaviors that are in our lives. There's not a day where we don't need the Holy Spirit to train us more and more for righteousness and transform us by the renewing of our minds and, and conform us to the image of Christ from one level of glory to the next. And His living and active Word, all of it, every word of it, is what He uses to do all of that. So, we're going to dig this morning into the second half of chapter 11 here today. And, and, and in fact, next week too, we're not going to be able to cover all of this this week. And we're going to discover its significance and see how God will use it to train us for righteousness. So in verse 19, we are reminded about the persecution against the church. It first started with the apostles themselves in Jerusalem in the early chapters of Acts, 
when they were thrown in prison for preaching about Jesus. And then it dramatically escalated, the persecution did, in chapter 7 with the stoning of Stephen, the first martyr whose life was taken in the church of Jesus Christ. And here, remember now, it's six or seven years later, the persecution hasn't stopped. And because of the persecution... The followers of Jesus who have come to faith in Him and begun to follow Him and, and spread the gospel of His grace, they have, they have scattered, verse 19 says, all around the Roman Empire because of this persecution. It says specifically they've scattered as, as far as Phoenicia by now, which is a region that's way above the Sea of Galilee. So it's beyond the northern border of of Israel. It's along the coast. It's a region along the coast of what today is known as Lebanon. They've scattered even to Cyprus, it says. Cyprus is a big island out in the Mediterranean to the west of Lebanon and and Syria, what we know of Syria today, and to the south of, of what is today the country of Turkey. And it says they've gone all the way up to Uh, the city in the mainland to the city of Antioch, which the ruins of which, and there's a little town in its place today, is in the southernmost part of what is today Turkey, near near the border of Syria. So, see, the church now, seven years after Pentecost, has grown. It's multiplied, multiplied greatly, Luke tells us in the book of Acts, fueled by the gospel of Jesus Christ and by God's providence, it has spread. It has been been blown providentially by the winds of persecution all across the empire. And from there, from starting to move north now, and and from there throughout the rest of the book of Acts, the gospel is going to spread, the church is going to grow, turning to the west all across Asia Minor, modern-day Turkey, and then it's going to cross the Aegean Sea and into Greece. Then it's going to cross the Adriatic and, and into Rome as the commission of Jesus continued to be fulfilled for His followers to become His witnesses to the very ends of the earth. And see, God does that and uses sovereignly orchestrated persecution to cause that to happen. And so the place that Luke focuses on here in these verses at the end of chapter 11 that we're looking at today, where the gospel comes to make an impact is the city of Antioch. And the significance of the story of the gospel in the city of Antioch is twofold. And we're going to look at one part of that today and one part of it next week. First of all, the city of Antioch itself is is an amazing place for the gospel of Jesus Christ to make an impact. And the impact of the gospel in a place like Antioch, I think, is massively encouraging for those of us who are living in places in this world where it might sometimes be tempting to think, uh, can the gospel really make an impact there? Because it's a really wicked place. Maybe God's done with this place. Maybe God's just written it off. Maybe we should get out while we can and go somewhere else because this place seems to be hopeless. This story will cure that if we have that notion in our minds about Santa Cruz County or the state of California. 
And secondly, and again, we're going to have to wait till next week to see this and dig into this one. Secondly, verse 26 says that it was in the city of Antioch, seven years after the events of Pentecost, that the disciples of Jesus were first called Christians. And I believe this passage will show us that that isn't just a neat little historical piece of trivia that you could use on a game show, right, to win an answer. Where were they called Christians? And you could, ooh, Antioch, and, and win a million bucks. No, there's a reason why they were called Christians. Because the word Christian is packed full of rich meaning, and all of it's on display in this passage. What does the word Christian mean? What does it really mean to be a Christian? Sometimes we allow the unbelieving world, the dictionary, to define that word for us. And it's an incomplete definition. And I think that here in Acts chapter 11 where God tells us that it was in Antioch where the disciples of Jesus first started using that term Christian, God also shows us the answer to the question of what it is truly to be a Christian. And when we come to understand it, it is powerfully profound in our lives. So that's what we'll dig into next week. But this week, let's jump in here and see how the power of the gospel was, was, was really unleashed by the Holy Spirit in the ancient city of Antioch and, and how that is significant and encouraging to us here and now in, in where we live in the kingdom of God in this world. So verse 19, Acts chapter 11 says that the disciples of Jesus, as they multiplied and spread, as they were scattered by persecution, they were bringing the gospel with them to the Jews specifically, right? And we, we saw that throughout the first ten chapters of Acts, there, or first nine chapters until we got to chapter ten, that it was, it was the Jews that the Jewish Christians were evangelizing, not just primarily, but, but exclusively except for the Ethiopian eunuch earlier in Acts. Until Acts chapter 10, where God taught Peter that the gospel was for all people, and that there can be no partiality between Jews and Gentiles, and that the old Jewish nationalistic pride, where they saw themselves as superior to the Gentiles, to people from other nations because they were Jewish, that that needed to die. So that the gospel could burst past any earthly ethnic boundaries and begin to, and the church could begin to be composed truly of people from every nation and tongue, which is the the purpose and the will of God. So, in verse 20, we learn that some of the disciples of Jesus who had come to faith in him in Cyprus and in Cyrene started preaching the truth about the Lord Jesus, not just to Jews, but to Hellenists, also to the Greek people in the empire, non-Jewish people, specifically in the city of Antioch. And we don't know, we're not told exactly how that came to be, that these Jewish converts to Christ and faith in Christ in Cyprus and Cyrene suddenly said, you know what, let's do, let's go preach to Gentiles in Antioch. We don't know what motivated them to do that, but it's not hard to assume that they'd heard something 
about what happened with Peter back in chapter 10 and Cornelius back in chapter 10 in Caesarea and Joppa. Remember where the Gentiles in Cornelius' home were brought into the kingdom of Christ. And God showed Peter that great vision, the meaning of which was the gospel is for all the world. They probably heard all about that and said, well, then let's go to Antioch and preach it to non-Jewish people and see what God does. They were excited, see? These Jewish followers of Jesus, they were excited to go to Antioch, which was a predominantly Gentile area, in order to bring the gospel to the Hellenists, to the Greeks, and see what God might do in His redeeming grace among the people of Antioch. Now, why Antioch? Specifically, here's why. Because in those days, Antioch was a huge, massive metropolis. And it was a very wealthy and cosmopolitan and prominent and influential city in the Roman Empire. In those days, Antioch was within the borders of the country of Syria and was called the metropolis of Syria. Now to us, the word metropolis, when we use it, it just means big city, right? When you think of a metropolis, you think of Superman, and he lived in a city called Metropolis because it was a big city. Literally in Greek, here's what that word means. It's a compound word. It's made up of two words, mater and polis. And the word mater means mother. And the word polis means city. Antioch was literally the mother city of all of Syria in the first century days of the Roman Empire. On the coins that they minted and used in Antioch, the words capital of the east were inscribed on those coins. And that's what the Roman Empire considered Antioch to be. Rome, way, way over in the west, in Italy, was the heart of the Roman Empire But all of the Roman emperors in the Senate considered Antioch to be the Roman capital in the east. The eastern part of the empire. The historian Josephus says that in terms of population and wealth and influence, Antioch ranked a close third to the city of Rome. First, and then Alexandria second. So literally, Antioch was the third largest city in the world. And the nearest to Jerusalem from where the gospel had begun to spread. Most modern scholars believe that the ancient historian Pliny was accurate when he said that the population of the city of Antioch exceeded 600,000 People, maybe even a million people, which in ancient times was a huge number of people. It was probably a city that was about five square miles, five miles by five miles, 25 square mile area, maybe even a little less. And so to pack 600,000 people meant it was a big, bustling, densely populated city. And as the Roman capital of the East, Antioch was a very, very wealthy city. It was a very cosmopolitan city. Everybody who lived there was rich, well-to-do, affluent. Many of them had 
influential places in society. Antioch had a big, famous, vast marketplace that sold everything you could imagine in the ancient world, and people came from all over the place in order to shop in that marketplace. It had its own amphitheater where Roman games were hosted, and in Antioch they even competed with the Olympic Games from Athens. Had its own theater where dramas and dances were performed. Offshore from Antioch was actually a, another part of the city that was an island. And there were boats that would ferry people back and forth to the island. Because on the island there was this massive palace surrounded by beautiful gardens and a circus out there. That you could go and be entertained by. And so it was kind of, kind of the place to be in the east. And in ancient times, the same thing was true, and you can imagine maybe even more so, the same thing was true about big, wealthy, influential, cosmopolitan cities that's true about them today. Because they're populated by lots and lots of people who are by nature fallen, depraved sinners, who suppress the truth of God, who don't, do not honor God as God, who do what is right in their own eyes, who follow after the lusts of their own flesh. Big cities tended to be, because they were populated by sinful people, tended to be very worldly places, full of all kinds of licentiousness and excess and idolatry and immorality. And Antioch epitomized all of that. Pagan temples to just about every Gentile false god that you can name existed in Antioch. Roman false gods, Greek false gods, Egyptian false gods, Semitic false gods. Temples to them existed, all of them, you name it, and there was an idolatrous temple for it in Babylon. Whether it was Baal or an Ashtaroth or... Osiris or Zeus or whatever, Daphne, temples existed everywhere around Antioch where you could practice any kind of idolatry your heart desired. And every form of godless licentiousness and immorality also that you can imagine thrived in Antioch, was promoted in Antioch, was celebrated in Antioch as people just lived it up like they do in big cities, right? Modern cities like San Francisco or New York or Chicago or Amsterdam, right? They have, they have nothing on Antioch in terms of ungodly worldliness. And so, see, when Jewish people from Cyprus and Cyrene, which were predominantly Jewish places and dominated by Jewish religion and were relatively tame compared to the big hoopla that was always going on in Antioch. When these Jewish people from Cyprus and Cyrene came to saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Messiah, as their Lord, and realized that this gospel of redemption was for all of the nations, they said to themselves, well, you know what we need to do? We need to go to Antioch. We need to go to this godless, idolatrous, dark, worldly, immoral capital of the East and we need to preach the gospel there. And it just makes me wonder how often that's our inclination as Christians. 
And here's what I see all too often. I see among Christians an inclination to condemn places of worldliness and to stay away from them and to cloister in places that are less worldly and to sort of stay out of those dark places. Kind of like Jonah condemned Nineveh wished God would condemn Nineveh and didn't want to go anywhere near Nineveh instead of longing to go there. God said they're wicked and I want you to go and, and, and call on them to repent and proclaim my mercy to them that they might repent. And Jonah said, no! Not only do I not want to go to that icky place because sanctimoniously he thought himself above it, But I don't want them repenting. I don't want to imagine that God might have mercy on those sinners. I want to hope for their destruction. And so he tried not to go, right? He tried not to go shine the light into the darkness. And I I feel like sometimes that's the inclination of Christians. Not to go, not to shine the light, not to see... Not to want to see the Holy Spirit unleash revival in places where it would glorify God the most for revival to be unleashed. I see an inclination to avoid places of worldliness because so often Christians can tend to harbor these these holier-than-thou, sanctimonious attitudes towards sinners, towards unbelievers, instead of longing for the same grace by which they were saved to be lavished on other sinners and for God to glorify Himself by marvelously transforming even the most desperately depraved lives by the power of the Gospel. And of course there are legitimate reasons why if you live in some dark, godless place like California, you might need to leave there. Especially when the Lord clearly and providentially eliminates your ability to stay there and then paves a big four-lane highway to some other place that you need to go by His providence, like He has done for our dear friends, the Carlsons and the Freemans and the Smiths. But see, Christians, let our motivation never ever be to condemn or to write off or to flee or to avoid the spiritually dark corners of this world, pretending that it's God's will for us to go somewhere else where we imagine it's going to be more spiritually enlightened and illuminated. When really it's not God's will, it's our own will to get out of the icky, uncomfortable places and go somewhere where we think the heavenly grass grows greener. That's not how it works. That's not why we're here. I mean, that was Jonah's mindset, right? He despised the Assyrian people of Nineveh. The Assyrians had laid waste to the northern kingdom of Israel. He hated them. He was bitter at them. He wanted God to punish them. He wished that God would just abandon Nineveh to his wrath and rain down judgment upon them. And I know it can be easy to feel that way about California. 
God, let there be a great earthquake and let it just fall off into the sea. Right? Or about Santa Cruz. Let it be like Sodom and Gomorrah and just rain fire down from heaven upon this wicked place, right? It can, it can, it can be tempting to feel that way about lots of places where the darkness is deep and where the currents of godlessness run really strong. But God said to Jonah, go! Go to the dark, wicked city of Nineveh and plead with them to repent. And tell them of my great mercy. And when Jonah got there, in in spite of himself, right? Because he tried not to get there. When Jonah got there by way of the stomach of a whale and called them to repent and told them of the mercies of the Most High God, what happened? They could have just killed him. They could have just stomped him into the dust in defiance against God and His prophet. But the whole city repented. Nineveh was a city of probably three or 400,000 people and they, repent, they all massive revival broke out in Nineveh and God was marvelously glorified. So, I mean, we got to ask ourselves, is there any dark corner of this sin-cursed world that God has abandoned, written off, that is so thick with worldly corruption that we can honestly say, God must be done with this place and so I will be done with it too. And the answer is no. Not as long as there are still lights of God's glory and grace that can burn in the darkness of those places. God hasn't written them off. The reason Peter says that Jesus has not yet returned to be done with the whole world which is what will happen when he returns in judgment. It won't just be one place. It won't just be Santa Cruz. It'll be the whole thing. But the reason why he has not yet come to condemn the whole world, to judge the whole world, to bring full and final judgment to, get, to, to bear against the whole thing, the reason why is because he's patient and he desires all to come to repentance. How patient are we? Are we as patient with our county, with our state, with our world, with our neighbors, as God is? The reason why we're still here in this world at all is so that we can be the light of the world. And the light always shines most brightly in the darkness. That's why God sent Jonah to Nineveh. That's why Jesus, who is himself the light of the world, came down from heaven, left all of the radiance of the eternal glory of heaven to come here into the darkness of the world. He did it because, as God says in John 1 verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness, what? Cannot overcome it. So the question of, where do you want to be? in this world as a Christian? You can't answer that question in the way Jonah answered it. Well, I want to be wherever it's safest. I want to be wherever it's most comfortable. I want to be wherever it's most conservative. I want to be wherever there are the least number of sinners or the least amount of ungodliness. No, where 
where do you want to be in this world, Christian, is wherever the light of Christ in me can shine the brightest. Wherever God can use me the most for the cause of the gospel and the sake of His kingdom. That's the only biblical answer. Wendy and I have wrestled with this for the past 20 years. But it hasn't ever been, we want to be where our kids can have the most friends. Or we want to be wherever the laws and the culture that we're going to raise our kids in are the most conservative. Because that certainly ain't here. Or anything else like that. It's, it's been... And, and it's been this way not because we're so spiritual, but because God has providentially like, not allowed us anything else and made it clear, this is where I want you. And so the answer is, we want to be wherever we can raise our kids to know the contrast of worldly darkness and godly light the best. And we want to trust in the power of God and His Word to train our boys' minds and hearts to love the light instead of the darkness. We want to be wherever God can use us the most to bring the light of His truth and love to bear on the darkness of the world. It's been whatever whatever limb God would put us out on where we have to live by faith the most, where we don't have it all together and it's not safe and it's not comfortable, that's probably where we have to walk by faith the most and that's probably where He would have us to be. You picture yourself way out on the end of a limb, right? Your instinct is to crawl from the far reaches of that limb in towards the trunk of the tree and grab it and hold it and go, oh, now I'm safe. That doesn't require faith. That requires your own strength. What requires faith is being out on the end of that limb knowing that if the limb breaks, the only thing that's going to catch you is the providence of God. So when Jewish people in Cyprus and Cyrene came and believed on Jesus and were saved and given new life in Him, and when they heard that God had brought the gospel to the Gentiles in Joppa and Caesarea by way of Peter's ministry there... The inclination of those new Jewish Christians as newly redeemed saints of God was not to say, well, let's go to the safest place that we can go where the most disciples of Jesus are so that we can all live together there away from all of the evil influences of this godless culture and world. No, their inclination, their impulse was to say, where is the darkest place that we can go by faith and bring the light of the gospel to that place? And the answer was, can't think of any worse place than Antioch. Can't think of a place more dark and worldly and ungodly and immoral and idolatrous than Antioch. Let's go there. Let's go to where the most pagans are. Let's go to where the most idolatry and immorality festers and let's unleash the power of God unto salvation there and let's see what God does. And what did God do? Verse 21, the hand of the Lord was with them. So they weren't on their own. And they weren't relying on their own strength or their own ability because the hand of the Sovereign Almighty Lord was with them. And so a great number 
who believed turned to the Lord in Antioch. Not Jewish people who at least had some knowledge in their head of the Old Testament God. And could come to faith that the Old Testament God had now become incarnate in the Messiah, Jesus Christ. Now these people were pagan. Unbelieving. They had no room in their thinking for the God of Abraham and Isaac. They did not fear God. They bowed before imaginary idols and false gods of demons. And many came to believe and turned to the Lord. So, Christians, do you believe that you are in this world for the glory of God? And do you believe that you are in this world for the sake of His kingdom and for the cause of the gospel and not first and foremost for any interests and ambitions of your own? Do you believe that the light shines brightest in the darkness? Do you believe that the darkness of this world cannot overcome the light of Jesus Christ? Do you believe that the hand of the Almighty God is with you as you stand for truth out there and preach the gospel out there and call all of the falsehood and lies what they are and call people to repent of godless lies and raise up your kids in the fear and the nurture of the Lord even in the midst of of worldly immorality? And teach them as you strive to do yourself to walk by faith and not by sight. If you believe all of that, then I'll tell you what. California, Santa Cruz, is a great place to be for the glory of Christ. Has God abandoned California? Has God abandoned Santa Cruz? Not as long as Jesus tarries to return. Not as long as Jesus has people here. Not as long as the light shines in and through us here. Jesus didn't pray in John 17 for his disciples to be taken out of the world. He prayed for them to be in the world and remain unstained by the evil one. That's what you pray for your kids. That's what you pray for yourself. That's what we pray for our church. We pray for God to unleash revival through the light of His truth and His gospel and His grace and His love in Jesus Christ. And that's what happened in Antioch. Revival happened in Antioch. Jewish believers in Jesus went there and let the light shine and many people in that worldly metropolis believed, turned to the Lord, repented of their sins and turned to the Lord. Supernatural revival broke out by the power of God in Antioch. And it broke out on enough of a scale that the disciples heard about it all the way back in Jerusalem, 300 miles away, verse 22 says. It was a big deal what happened in Antioch. And when they heard about it, when the church in Jerusalem heard about it, knowing that there were many new believers up in Antioch, and knowing that new believers need help, in coming to understand the foundations of their faith and how to walk by faith and how to work out their salvation and how to grow in grace and how to persevere and avoid temptation and run with endurance. In short, right, knowing that this new flock of disciples needed discipleship, 
the church in Jerusalem sent Barnabas up to them. Now you remember Barnabas, right? First met Barnabas back up in Acts chapter 4. His birth name was Joseph. But because he was given great wisdom by God and he was a godly man and full of the love and the peace of God, the apostles nicknamed him Barnabas because that word literally means son of encouragement. That's what he was known. He was known for just being an encouraging guy. Mr. Encouragement, basically, essentially is what everybody called him, because he was such a humble, gracious, loving, wise, encouraging servant of Jesus and of others. So that, that's why they sent him specifically to Antioch. See? They could have sent anybody, but they knew, well, new Christians don't just need teaching, they also need encouraging. They don't just need exhorting, they also need encouraging. See, there's a, there's a whole series of lessons, I think, that could come just from these few verses about Barnabas on, on discipleship. I mean, we don't have time to flesh all of the implications of it out in depth today, but I think the essence of it is this, that discipleship, which just means helping disciples of Jesus know how to live like disciples of Jesus, live like Jesus, discipleship is a two-sided coin. And the two sides are exhortation and encouragement. So the church sent Barnabas to Antioch because they knew that all of the new disciples of Jesus in Antioch and all disciples of Jesus, period, who are always learning and growing in the grace and the knowledge of Jesus Christ, they need encouragement. They need to understand the depths of the grace of God that not only saves us from our sin, but also sanctifies us As the gospel love of Jesus Christ changes our hearts, changes our minds, fills us with gratitude towards God, fills us with love for Him who has first loved us. And as the kindness of God leads us to greater and greater heights of repentance and and growth and holiness. And the disciples of Jesus also need exhortation. Exhortation just means to come alongside someone else and help them, urge them, exhort them to keep learning, to keep growing, to keep mortifying the sin that remains in them, to keep putting off the deeds of the flesh, to keep putting on the righteousness of Christ. And how? By knowing the grace and the love of Christ that will train our hearts to prize His holiness above our own sinful desires. And Barnabas was was both sides of the coin, see? He was both parts of that discipleship. He was literally Mr. Encouragement. If he had to rebuke you, you felt good about it. If he had to say, brother, you're walking in sin, you didn't feel judged by him, you didn't feel worthless, you felt the love of Christ being spoken to you in the truth that Barnabas spoke. When Barnabas got to Antioch, he saw how the grace of God had redeemed many lives. And verse 23 says, he was glad. Right? He wasn't suspicious. He wasn't sanctimonious and holier than thou and get up to Antioch. And yeah, I heard a bunch of people made professions of faith, but I doubt very many of you take it seriously. 
let's put your feet to the fire and see how you last. No, he wasn't unrealistic and expecting that all of a sudden these former Greek pagans would be paragons of godly maturity. He knew they needed time to grow. He was just excited and glad that they had come to faith. And he knew that they had a long road of growth in grace ahead of them. And so he exhorted them. It says right there in verse 23, he exhorted them to remain faithful to the Lord with steadfast purpose. He told them things like, you know what? As people who used to live in all of the sin that's all around you in this city, he didn't say what you need to do is move to someplace holier so you're not tempted. No, he said it's going to be tempting as you stay here. But the grace of God is sufficient. And there is no temptation except that which is common to man. And God always provides a way of escape and it's in His grace and the power of His Word. It's going to be tempting to keep indulging in the worldliness. It's going to be hard to forsake all of the worldliness and live for Christ now in this world that hates Christ. You've got a lot to learn. You've got a long road ahead of you. It's not going to be easy. You're going to have to persevere. You're going to have to endure in order to remain faithful to Jesus in this world. But by His grace, you can do it because His grace is sufficient for all these things. And you're going to stumble. And when you stumble, He's going to help you stand and keep going. And if you keep your eyes fixed on Him, He'll help you run with endurance and and not get tangled up in all the sin that can encumber you. And by His strength, you'll be able to soar on wings like an eagle. Because when we're weak, that's when His strength is made perfect in us. And His Word is living and active and powerful. And His grace is sufficient. And He's always with us. And He never leaves us. And He doesn't forsake us. And there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. See? Exhortation and encouragement. Stay in Antioch. And grow and yourselves become lights of the world here in the darkness. Exhortation and encouragement. So often, disciple makers like to focus on one. Disciple makers like to emphasize one. Disciple makers like to major on one and minor on the other, if that. So a lot of times there's a lot of exhortation, but there's not a lot of encouragement. There's a lot of law and not a lot of grace. And that can very easily lead to discouragement in the lives of growing disciples. Or other side, right? A lot of times there's a lot of encouragement and not very much exhortation. And that can lead to deception in the lives of Jesus' disciples because they're led to believe that God's just fine with you just as you are. You don't need to grow. You don't need to mature. You don't need to persevere in lives of ongoing transformation and sanctification. It's got to be both exhortation and encouragement. It's got to be the truth spoken in love. It's got to be the kindness of God leading people to repentance. It's got to be the ongoing application of the gospel of grace transforming lives conforming them more and more into the image of the righteousness of Jesus Christ. And that's what Barnabas was all about. And after he exhorted the new disciples in Antioch to 
remain faithful, then he left. But he only left in order to go get Saul in Tarsus and bring him back to Antioch so that together they could spend whatever time they needed doing discipleship together in Antioch. Teaching, encouraging, exhorting, helping these disciples grow, helping them understand the gifts that God had given to them to use in the church, raising up leaders, equipping the saints for the work of ministry. They spent a whole year there doing this. And as they did, a great many people in Antioch came to the Lord and were taught and were discipled. And the church became strong there. The church became influential there. In subsequent years and decades and centuries of the church, major church councils would be held in Antioch. People would come from all over, Christians and bishops from all over the empire to gather in Antioch because the church was so strong there. There were so many Christians there. God glorified Himself powerfully there as the light grew brighter and brighter and brighter in the darkness of Antioch. As Jewish disciples from Cyprus and Cyrene went to the darkness there because the Holy Spirit redeemed many people there through the power of the Gospel. Because Barnabas went there to the darkness, brought Saul and they stayed there in the darkness for a whole year making disciples. And because those disciples in Antioch stayed and made more disciples, because the light shone brightly in the darkness and the darkness could not overcome it. Now chapter 11 ends with Luke telling us that after Barnabas and Saul ministered to the Christians, they became called Christians in Antioch, prophets came up from Jerusalem to Antioch. Christians, disciples of Jesus, who in the early days of the church were given by God the Holy Spirit the gift of prophecy, even even predictive prophecy, where God enabled them to be able to foretell things about the future that had not yet happened. And one of those prophets was named Agabus. And Agabus foretold the future, foretold by the Holy Spirit, right? He wasn't just guessing. He wasn't making it up. The Holy Spirit was prophesying through him. And so Agabus was able to foretell of a great famine that was going to come upon the whole civilized world, upon the whole empire. And Luke, writing this all down after the fact, of course, tells us that what Agabus prophesied came true. It did happen. It happened during the days of the Emperor Claudius. And we know that Claudius was the emperor from about 41 AD to 54 AD. And history tells us that there was indeed, there were many famines all around the empire, and and especially one massive, widespread, severe famine in the years 45 and 46 AD. But the point here isn't just that Agabus prophesied something accurately. Of course he did. He did it by the Holy Spirit, and God knows everything. Well, the reason why Luke tells us this is to show us What happened when Agabus made the prophecy in order to show us the fruit of the Holy Spirit in the lives of the disciples and the church there in Antioch when God said a famine is coming? I mean, remember, most of these people are Gentiles, right? Living in rich, affluent, cosmopolitan Antioch. 
These were wealthy people. These were Tesla drivers. Maybe, maybe Bentley drivers, I don't know. But they were wealthy people. They were used to having a lot in this world. They, they, they were used to being able to afford anything that they wanted in this world. And when Agabus came from Jerusalem saying that there was going to be a massive famine, their inclination, their instinct, their impulse wasn't to start hoarding their money and storing up food for themselves and, and, and rushing off to Costco and buying all the toilet paper so that when the famine came, they'd be sure that they had enough. That's not what they did. Because see, they were disciples of Jesus now. And they'd been discipled by Saul and Barnabas for a long time now. And see, all of the old fleshly impulses of selfishness and pride and greed were being subdued by the Spirit of God now and the Word of God now. They were walking by faith now. They were bearing the fruit of the Spirit now. They were seeking first the kingdom now. They were not storing up treasures on earth now. And so as Christians in Christ, the desires of their hearts and the priorities of their lives were no longer being defined by by them, by their old, sinful, selfish, prideful selves. Now everything was being defined by Christ in them. This is what we're going to dive into in more depth Next week is a a follow-up in terms of what it really means to be a Christian. It doesn't just mean to do your best to act like Jesus. It means to be in Jesus. And it means for Him to be in you so that His life is your life now. So that His desires are more and more becoming your desires. So that what He loves is becoming more and more what you love. So that what He hates is becoming more and more what you hate as you are becoming more conformed to the image of Him. So this is what was going on with Christians in Antioch. When they heard the Holy Spirit prophesy through Agabus about a massive famine, they knew that there were, they were people of, uh, of more earthly money and means than a lot of other people in this world. They knew that Christians in other parts of the empire had a lot less than they had. Especially in Judea and Jerusalem where the persecution was most intense. And so people had little and needed much. And so instead, see, of having the instinct to hoard their money and store up food and supplies for themselves in Antioch, these new Christians all determined to send money. Everyone, as much as he was able to the brothers, to the Christians living in Judea. Greek Christians who used to be despised by the Jews. The Jews looked down their noses on them and called them dogs. Called them Gentiles. Goyim. It it came to be a, a pejorative term. They would say it with disgust. The Gentiles didn't like the Jews. Because the Jews despise the Gentiles. But these Greek Christians now sending as much of their money as they could to the Jewish Christians because they considered them their brothers, their sisters. 
in Christ, even though they lived 300 miles away in Judea and they'd never seen him before, never met him before, never had a Zoom meeting where these poor Christians in Judea said, help, help, because everything's hard down here. They, did, they, they just sent money. They said, here, Barnabas and Saul, let's fill up your bags with money and you take it back there to Judea and give it to those poor brothers and sisters of ours in Christ. Because it was no longer they who lived. It was Christ who lived in them. Because the love of Christ had been shed abroad in their hearts and that love constrained their lives. Because now these Gentiles had been given so much, so freely by the grace of God that they had no problem at all freely giving to others. Because having gained an eternal inheritance in glory with Jesus, they weren't bound anymore to anchoring their hope to the temporal things of this world. Because they knew that having Christ and having their lives hid with Christ in God meant they had everything. And I pray that this is the same way that we have learned Christ. That he's not just someone who provides us with earthly health and wealth and prosperity if we trust him. That's a false gospel. That's a false religion. That Jesus hasn't just bought us an e-ticket to heaven and so we just need to get through this life as comfortably as possible. Keep your head down. Go wherever you can. Where there's not evil, where there's not darkness, where there's not immorality. You're not going to find that place, right, by the way, but... Until the glory train pulls into the station and gets you out of here to heaven. That's not, that's not why Jesus has us in this world. And he's not just a good example to follow so that our lives can be happier in this world. What we need to realize is that Jesus is life. And that our lives in this world exist for him and for the singular purpose of being vessels of his life and of his love and of his grace and of his truth and of his light in the darkness of this world. Wherever he would have us to live for the greatest impact of the gospel, for the greatest increase of the kingdom, for the greatest display of his glory. If you go to Christianville and raise your kids and they grow up to be Christians, you can give glory to God. But if you raise your kids in downtown Babylon and your kids grow up to give glory to God, you can glorify them all the more. Oh, Father, use my ransom life in any way you choose. And let my song forever be my only boast is you. Hallelujah. All I have is Christ. Hallelujah. Jesus is my life. Let's pray together this morning. Then we're going to sing those words to him as we come to the table to feast on the grace that we need to live for his glory. Our Father and our God, how thankful we are for your word and for the fact that it is so easy for us to understand on the one hand and yet so complicated on the other hand. It is truly a pool where children wade and yet, Father, where an elephant could drown because it is deep and rich. And this morning we have tasted of the richness of the truth of your word as we come into contact once again with the display of the power of your gospel and with the fact that our lives are not our own, that we have been bought with a price and that to live is Christ. 
And so, Father, help us to live as Christ in this world. Help him to live in us and through us in this world. Help us, Father, to forsake ourselves and to say, Jesus is my life. And to let the light of his glory and grace shine and the truth of your word shine out into the darkness of this world wherever you would put us. For it is for the sake of Christ and it is in his great name and for the sake of his glory that we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So take your bulletins and turn to page five. And let's all stand up together. Raise our voices up to him as he sits at the right hand of the Father in heaven and let us sing to him, all I have is Christ. Christ.